Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. Jonathan Abrams was the founder of the very first modern social networking site, Friendster. In this episode, we have the whole story, the ideas that inspired the very notion of social media, the struggles to launch a web startup after the dot-com bubble burst, the challenges of suddenly becoming the hottest startup in the world, and the eventual battles with MySpace and later Facebook for primacy in social media as we know it today. Abrams is, of course, today the founder of one of my absolute favorite social media apps, Nuzzle. But this is the story of the birth of social media from one of the key people who made it happen, Jonathan Abrams. Jonathan Abrams, thanks for coming on the Internet History Podcast. My pleasure. Great to be here. So uh, you you grew up in Canada, right? That's true. Don't tell Donald Trump. That is true. (laughs) Well, but that explains... uh, Was your first job uh, at at Nortel? Um, That was like my first, you know, real professional post-college job. I mean, Mm -hmm. I had, you know, other uh, kid jobs. But yeah, that was was my first job after graduating with my uh, computer science degree was at Nortel. Well, I wanted to frame that for a specific reason. Um, so I, I know you joined Netscape in 1996. So I'm sort of wondering, were you like, were you part of that first wave of kids that realizes the web is happening? I got to get out into into Silicon Valley where where it's all happening so I can be a part of it? Well, I don't think I was on the in the first wave. I, I, I think I was too uh, ignorant of it all in the very first wave. When mm-hmm. I was in, uh, in college studying computer science, that's when uh, Mosaic came out. And I remember downloading Mosaic, and I remember it just being blown away and it being such a sort of a big deal to me. But uh, I did not think that you could get a job doing internet stuff. Uh, I didn't even dream that all this like web and internet stuff, which was very, very early then, but I was like so... Uh, enthralled by. I didn't think I could actually get a job doing that. It just didn't even occur to me. If I'd grown up in, um, you know, in California, maybe I would have realized that, but I didn't even even think that was an option. So I, you know, went to Nortel to write telephone software. So how do you then uh, end up joining Netscape? Were, were you recruited? What What takes you out to California, essentially? Well, you're probably going to like this, but it was a book. It mm. was a, a memoir. Uh, I'm guessing you probably have this book. It's Startup a Silicon Valley Adventure by Jerry Kaplan. Absolutely, yep. Uh, so I read that book. I was still in Canada. I read that book. And um, this book was about an entrepreneur who had this idea for, you know, sort of the something like the iPad, but way too early. And uh, venture capitalists, and they started the company and, and raised money and all this kind of stuff. Uh, so it was it was that, and it was a combination that um, while I was working at Nortel, Netscape, and Yahoo went public. So you know you could open up a newspaper and, and read this, and that sort of clued me in. Oh my God, these are actually companies because you know I had I had used Yahoo when it was Dave and Jerry's bookmark page at a Stanford.edu server, mm-hmm. and I had downloaded uh, you know Mosaic, and of course the Mosaic people later started Netscape, and but I hadn't. Like I said, I hadn't thought 
that I could actually, you know, get paid to work on that kind of stuff. So when Netscaping I went public, and then I read that book, it all sort of, um, you know, clued me to the fact that, you know, I'm in the wrong place, and I actually could get paid to do this kind of stuff. So I sent my resume. I emailed my resume to uh, to Yahoo and to Netscape. And did Yahoo respond also? Uh, actually, no. I never. <laughs> I, uh, you know, I've had definitely many run-ins with Yahoo in, in the years since. But back then in the 90s, I did not hear a response from Yahoo. Netscape, on the other hand, did respond and ultimately offered me a job. And I... Moved out to Silicon Valley, and the rest is history, as you as you say. Well, I do. I I just want to stop on this briefly because I've had a lot of the you know founding engineering team of Netscape on, but I I've not really had uh, some of the the later people, as you say, the second wave of people at Netscape. So, just from your personal perspective, what can you tell me about uh, the culture of, of Netscape in say ninety six, ninety seven, especially in relation to you know s- startup culture generally that you've experienced subsequently. Well, I, like you said, I wasn't one of the first folks. I mean, when I joined Netscape, the company was very young, but it already had a thousand people. Mm-hmm. And then while I was there, in a year and a half, it went from a thousand to three thousand, insanely fast. Um, and all, then ultimately had a lot of problems, and then was sold to AOL. Um, the, what I, for me, it was drastically different culture than I had been uh, used to at Netscape, at, sorry, at Nortel in Canada. So Nortel. Um, Coming from the te- telecom industry, the, you know, the internet industry was a lot younger than the PC industry, and the telecom industry was much older than the PC industry, and it was very much like Dilbert. And I think uh, Scott Adams worked at uh, Pac Bell, and I think Pac Bell and Nortel probably had very similar cultures. So coming from from Nortel, um, I was kind of shocked and, and excited about the sort of this Silicon Valley type of culture that Netscape had, and I think the sort of Silicon Valley um, culture um, that you, today you might see at Google or, or Facebook probably all started at Atari, really. But I think Netscape was sort of a, a flagship of that at that point in time. So um, they gave everybody free beverages, and I was just shocked at that. You know that I would even get a free Coke. That was not something I was used to. Now, mm-hmm. of course, today Google and Facebook give people free <laughs> everything and free beautiful catered <laughs> meals. But uh, you know, 20 years ago, coming from Nortel, the fact that they were giving the engineers free sodas, man, I mean, I was sold. I thought that was amazing. And uh, some of the engineers had built a Golden Gate Bridge out of soda cans that was um, that was sort of like erected amidst the uh, the engineering cubicles. Uh, there was, you know, just a lot more hacker culture. There was like an aquarium with a webcam, one of the very first webcams that ever existed. So, right, you know, you'd see this aquarium. yeah, you'd see this aquarium and then you see this camera and, you know, anybody on the Internet could be looking at this right now. And, you know, just stuff like that. But, you know, those kind of hackery, creative things, uh, you know, that was just not not the kind of thing that I'd ever seen before. So I thought it was I thought it was really cool. Um, and so what are, you're an engineer, what are you working on uh, specifically, I guess? At Netscape? Yeah. Well, originally, so I, I had um, uh, started off doing telephone software at Nortel, and then I had transitioned to work in a research lab, and I had been doing a lot of stuff with Java, which was very new back then, and that's how I got the job at Netscape. So I was in the Java department, but instead of actually programming in Java, it turns out that I was assigned to... Uh, work on the Java implementation in the browser 
which of course was not written in Java. That was written in C or C++. So I ended up actually not doing a lot of Java initially. And uh, I ended up getting assigned to fix a bunch of bugs in the, um, in the Java virtual machine on the Mac version of the browser, which was funny because I actually had no experience at the time coding for the Mac. And of course, this is not today's Mac. This was um, a different era of, of Mac. But I actually had to go to Apple and take a course in Cupertino, and, and then I started working on that, and it was very buggy. I think the uh, Java implementation for Windows and Unix was based on one that Sun had had created, and then, and then Netscape had, had been given that. There wasn't one, I think, for the Mac, so some guy had quickly hacked together this thing, just like everything in Netscape, and then I think he'd left. He wasn't even there anymore. So, and then I think this was it was it was so fast, but I think it was already Netscape three. So I initially basically was fixing bugs in 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 Netscape three, making the Java on the Mac version work properly. Very mundane stuff, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, one more one more Netscape question. You know, looking back in history, it's the the era of the um, the browser wars, the competition with Microsoft, and as you say, eventually the AOL purchase from. From the front lines, from uh, the perspective of a grunt, um, was there this sense that Netscape was under siege? Um, you're there for only two years, but those are the final two years of them being independent. Was there, was there that sense that Netscape was struggling? Yeah, I, I'd say so. It was, it was really both. On one hand, the company was rapidly expanding and also going into way too many areas at once. At the same time, there still was a bit of a, a siege mentality. Um, part of it, I think, was that in the early days when they sort of marched to their getting their initial version out and getting to the IPO, the engineers had put in sort of really grueling hours, and and they had even though they were all that was wildly successful, they still had this sort of um, mentality of like we're all doomed because we're trying to do something impossible. And while I was there, that sort of were doomed mentality still persisted in the client engineering group, mm. um, and they had a you know an effigy of Bill Gates on the wall. So there there definitely was a us versus Microsoft um, sort of uh, vibe. And uh, initially, you know, Internet Explorer was not very impressive, and Internet Explorer one didn't really hurt Netscape. Internet Explorer two didn't really hurt Netscape, but of course Microsoft. They always, you know, they can keep going and going and going, and eventually Internet three uh, got better. I think while at the same time, um, Netscape's browser actually got buggier too. And uh, by by the time it was Internet three, which is definitely not, you know, not from the get go, but by that point, um, it really started to hurt Netscape. So you leave around ninety eight, around the time of the um, AOL purchase. I left a little before that, actually. I, um, after working on, you know, fixing the bugs and stuff, I then had an opportunity to work on a lot more interesting project. It was actually a, the next generation uh, browser um, that never actually, unfortunately, uh, finished. So, but the, uh, there was this big next gen browser project that I was part of. That that was really exciting. Of course, didn't actually succeed. Uh, then, after things started going badly, that project was canceled and. Um, some of the people went to work on, um, I think it was called NetCenter. It was, you know, basically Netscape's um, sort of copycat of, of Lycos, Excite, and Yahoo. A portal, and yeah. then, yeah. And then others were 
working on removing swear words from the code base in preparation to open sourcing it, which led to Firefox. But I uh, I decided to to take the layoff package and, and move on at that point. And then later, not that long after, but but later, uh, AOL ended up buying Netscape. So you take the buyout package, and um, is are you determined to do a startup at that point? Do you want to strike off on your own? At that point, I actually joined a much smaller company. I joined a startup that was around 100 people, uh, but only stayed there around a year. That company also turned out to have a lot of problems, and that company actually eventually went public and was acquired by IBM. But after after you know many many ups and downs, uh, you know as is common mm-hmm. with you know with startups, that wasn't Hotlinks. That was a, a company that right. that was not a company I founded. That right, was right, a, right. a company that had around 100 people when I joined. I left that company to start Hotlinks. Well, uh, tell me briefly the the story of of Hotlinks and and the idea behind that. Well, it sort of goes back to when I was working at uh, at Nortel. So, um, I was working on telephony software, but I had been a you know an early user of the web and HTML and Netscape and or I guess Mosaic really and all that kind of stuff. And since Nortel was a global telecommunications company, they were very early for having um, a global wide area network and an intranet and all that kind of stuff long before most companies would simply because they were a, a company that was in that um, you know, in the business of having networks. So they happen to have uh, a global network and they happen to have all these, of course, computer science uh, types working there. Um, so they people started creating internal websites and then somebody created an internal search engine, sort of like, like Google, of course, before Google existed. And um, just somehow occurred to me that uh, it'd be cool to create a Yahoo-style web directory uh, so that you could... Uh, uh, look at a you know a directory of all our divisions or all our locations or all the projects or all the technologies and somehow uh, uh, browse amongst all these many internal websites that had been created within this global eighty thousand person company. So I whipped up this thing called Achu, a sort of a play on Yahoo, and um, then years later, uh, when I was working on Hotlinks, it was a little bit uh, sort of the the son of Achu. Uh, I thought instead of just having that for a, a company, everybody should have sort of their own Yahoo. Um, so it was a way of, of uh, what we now call social bookmarking. So I thought you could take your bookmarks from your browser, upload them to the web. Then you'd have the same bookmarks in all your browsers or computers because you'd you know go to this, this web uh, tool uh, that would have your favorite links. Uh, but it would also turn them into a browsable directory that sort of looked like your own mini Yahoo, which would be cool because then other people could see your links. And I thought, you know, that's a really cool thing because people are finding all this stuff. They should be a way to share it with each other. So you could see the other cool uh, bookmarks or links or, or whatever you call it that other people have and you could sort of share it. And that was really the idea. Um, this was, I think, probably five years before Delicious, but it right. was a similar idea, probably too early. Um, and I also think that bookmarking, online bookmarking, social bookmarking, whatever, it turns out is, is really too nerdy an implementation of the idea. But if you look at Pinterest and Facebook and Reddit and Twitter today, you know, there's a huge amount of people using social media to share links with each other. So I think the idea that instead of everybody searching in a search engine and never sharing the results of what they found with each other, that, that people should be able to actually, once they found cool links, share them with each other, I think that was uh, an idea that made a lot of sense, but um, Hotlinks was 
really early in terms of you know how many people were even online uh, and also i think just the uh the idea of it um the vision expressed literally as a bookmarking tool i think that that turns out not to be you know how it, how the mainstream people ended up sharing links um you know more people way more people use you know linkedin i'm not linkedin twitter mm-hmm. uh Pinterest, um, Facebook, um, to share links, you know, than are using something like hot links or delicious. Well, I think I read though that you, you did get about a half a million registered users, but I guess it was just, uh, it, it ended up being a victim of, of the bubble bursting, right? Well, half a million was pretty good, I guess for, Oh, I uh, think so. Yeah. 19, for 1999, but you know, services like Pinterest and Twitter and Facebook are obviously used by hundreds of millions of people. Well, right. That's not apples to apples, though. <laughs> right. So, and I think, you know, and I think, you know, there's probably um, people still today who use services like um, uh, Delicious or Pinboard, but it is not a mainstream thing. It, I think it, it, we've seen that that bookmarking is sort of a, a power user thing, but there are other uh, ways that people share links that are a little bit more mainstream than than bookmarking. I mean, I guess you could say Pinterest is sort of bookmarking, but mm-hmm. mm, you know, I guess I guess Pinterest is is maybe what Hotlink should have been. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I want to uh, frame a little bit of context again because um, we we do get into the bubble bursting now, and I believe you, like a lot of other people, might <laughs> might be out of a job at that point. Um, I kind of want to do a whole episode on collecting people's memories of of the nuclear winter um, after the bubble. But I I wonder if you could go into it just from your experience, because it'll set the stage for why it was crazy to a lot of people to try to start a a web startup in 2002 like you eventually did. Yeah, it was pretty brutal. Um, So Hotlinks, uh, you know, went through the dot-com boom, then the dot-com crash. Uh, when the dot-com crash came, uh, we managed to sell Hotlinks and merged with another company, and our engineers uh, kept their jobs for at least another year or two, and our state stayed up for a while, which you know I sort of considered a moral victory at the time because uh, during that period, people were having uh, layoff camps and all, you know, pink slip parties. Uh, it seemed like every day we would uh, hear about a, another company, sometimes companies backed by the same investors, they were abruptly shutting down and people would just, the, the people would come in and, and be, be like, surprised, we're out of business. So, you know, yeah, it was a pretty brutal time. A lot of people left the Bay Area. The venture capital firms scrubbed the word internet off their websites. People uh, went into different careers. Um, and But I actually got um, another job as the head of engineering at a, at a startup, one of the few that actually had money at the time. Um, so I was not immediately out of a job. Uh, I, immediately, I actually got another job. And this company was actually trying to do uh, mobile stuff, um, you know, how, letting people uh, sh- send messages and take photos and share them on mobile, um, all of which obviously is huge today. But this mm-hmm. was back uh, long before the iPhone. This right. is 2000. So now we're talking about 2001. So this is on some Nokia smartphones. It's on. It's using WAP, uh, which was this sort of crappy way of doing HTML in a teeny feature phone. Uh, I think there was some J2Me stuff. So it was all the, all the crappy mobile technologies that we attempted to to work before iPhone and Android. Um, and they, those technologies definitely did not work at all. But I was uh, uh, working on that for a while. Then that company 
uh, Shocker uh, had problems. The uh, VCs merged it with another one of their companies. Uh, pretty much, uh, I think all the founders of both companies either got laid off, fired, or quit in the in the end by a certain amount of time. Uh, the company moved to Southern California and. Uh, and I guess, as you say, I was sort of out of a job at that point. And that's when I ended up starting Friendster. All right. So let's get into the good stuff. Where does the, um, where does the idea for Friendster uh, come from? Well, it's, you know, it's funny. Everybody always wants those Pez dispenser moments. Right, and right. Most, those are mostly invented and not really true. 100%. Uh, yeah. that, you know, that sort of, you know, you walk, we're walking in the park and you had that epiphany right at that moment. And that's where it came from. Most of those stories are actually made up and not really true. And you know, the reality of Friendster is that it was the synthesis of all sorts of stuff. I had been interested in using computers to connect people really my whole life. When I was a teen on my Commodore 64, I had a, a stupid BBS with maybe, uh, you know, five people on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, um, at both Nortel and Netscape, you know, those were companies that were really, you know, using computers to connect people uh, through telephony and through the internet. You know, that was um, in my entire career, you know, how I had chosen to uh, to work on computers, specifically, you know, using computers to connect people rather than, you know, accounting software or video games or other things. Um, and as an entrepreneur, I had come to Silicon Valley not having gone to Stanford or Berkeley or MIT, not with a pre-existing network. So I'd had to do a lot of networking to raise my first million dollars in, in venture capital funding two years after entering uh, the country. So um, it was really a combination of looking at all the ways that people networked online uh, obviously, there was a lot of online community and all, all, all sorts of stuff that predated Friendster, but it was all tended to be anonymous or pseudonymous. You would, uh, even if you, Brian, and I were like real friends in real life or or somehow connected in real life, we would both go online with a handle and, and sort of o- online, whether it was sort of chat rooms or message boards or whatever, it was, it was all sort of this fantasy land. Um, and as an entrepreneur... Um, you know, I had really uh, networked by meeting one person who had introduced me to another, who had introduced me to another. That's sort of how it worked. Um, that's how I think people, um, you know, preferred uh, to to make new friends. Or sometimes, you know, unlike online dating, you know, you would you would if you met somebody uh, in real life, you might meet you know meet somebody through a friend, and there was some sort of social context. And I just thought, why is the online world so anonymous and creepy? Um, we should, you know, take this six degrees of separation idea, take the way you normally meet people online, take the way things normally work, take the way that entrepreneurs network for business, take all this kind of stuff and, and bring my social graph online. And let me actually have my real name, my real identity, my real friends, my real social context, and sort of see how I'm connected to people. So it all, it was all, all this kind of stuff coming together, but it was still a very, um, counterintuitive and, and goofy idea in my head until I built it. It was certainly not something I had any idea would actually work because getting people to use their real name and picture on the internet was kind of crazy at this point. Did you did you prototype it first before you uh, started to try to find angel money for it or uh, how, did, how did that work? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So this is 2002. Uh, angel money, venture money, mm-hmm, any money mm-hmm. is very hard to come by. And nobody's really investing in 2002, and they're certainly not investing in internet stuff. Um, so, yeah, I built a prototype, 
and uh, you know, I had no idea this was going to go anywhere. But since it was 2002, my phone was not ringing with uh, you know lots of stuff going on. I mean, there was just nothing going on. My friends weren't starting companies. They you know things were just dead. So it really gave me the freedom and time to work on something that seemed ridiculous because you know why not? Um, not much else was going on. So I built a prototype, uh, invited some friends on it, and uh, they just started immediately doing what I'd hoped they'd do. That you know, one person would invite another person, who would invite another person, and they just you'd go on this thing and you'd see a few people you knew, and you could click on them and you could see, oh, there's another person I know, and this is how I know that person, and there's a picture. It was just people found it captivating, and they would um, start inviting other people, and of course. Nobody in the world knew what was going on when it was growing from 100 to 150 and from 150 to 300. Um, but um, it pretty much started working from the beginning. Once it got to maybe, I don't know, a few hundred thousand people, that's when I uh, got some people to invest. Um, well, let's, and- let's, let's stop, though, and let's, let's focus on some of the, the, the mechanics of this. So you, you've got the, the friend request system that we're familiar with today, so that, that sort of – um, you know, creates the the permission based. Okay, that's how the network is put together. And then the, the the software that you have is is literally mapping these connections so that I can I can go on and and go down the tree as it were and see how I'm connected to all these people. And 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 that's the 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 meat of of what the system was at first. Yeah, you could see how you're connected to people, sort of like the six degrees of separation, but but actually not a theory, but like on your computer right, right. there to click on. Although I think you know it wasn't really about six degrees; it was more about you know two degrees, three degrees, four degrees, um, and but there was also pictures, which was huge. Uh, I mean, it, and it was very picture centric. Today, I think you probably just like it's commonplace that you have little circles with pictures of people as their avatars everywhere. I don't think that existed before Friendster. And of course, you know, part of it is timing because um, digital cameras or, I mean, at that point, um, it wasn't on your phone. You'd still have to plug your digital camera into a computer and transfer the photo. But I mean, it just seemed like a lot more people had, you know, a digital photo of themselves. But that was, that was, I think, at least from what I remember, a new idea that everywhere it said Brian, there'd be a little picture of Brian, not just your name. Um... And people love looking at pictures, especially, you know, pictures of their friends or their friends' friends. Um, and you could send messages. Um, I mean, it was the, – the initial feature set was not that much different than the end feature set or, or a lot of what still is on Facebook today. Right, I mean, right. It was, you know, uh, a list of friends, people's picture, real name. You could um, click from person to person. You could send messages. You could, you know uh, – you know, uh, add somebody as your friend and then they'd have to say yes or no. And um, how much, because, you know, I obviously went back and read all the articles, early articles from the time and they all, those early articles always contextualize it as a dating app. So was that in your thinking at all? Like how much of that at the very beginning was, were people actually using it to, you know, meet chicks and stuff? Well, so the idea actually was that it was not a dating app. Uh, the idea was that it was um, it was an, something that was not online dating, but could be used for online dating, of course, because the reality is anything there is, some people are going to try to exploit it for for dating, anything. But the idea, and it was, I think, novel at the time, was that it actually wasn't 
explicitly a dating site because when you go to a bar or a club at night, you know, probably there's more people there who are single than the people who are married with kids and people are absolutely interested in potentially meeting somebody. But if it said on the wall above the door, singles bar, less people would want to go in than more because you don't want it to be so blatant. You want it to be a little bit more subtle than that. Um, and the idea was that that unlike business networking sites or dating sites, this was a general purpose networking service, the first, I think, of anybody really trying to do that, uh, and, and really for anybody. And then you could use it in a variety of ways. Maybe you'd use it to meet, catch up with an old friend you'd lost track of. Maybe you'd use it for dating, but that was never the sole explicit purpose. And what that meant was that people who weren't even single would also go on because those are important mutual connections. Uh, and that even if you were using it for dating, you didn't have to sort of admit it, which I thought was something people preferred. But what happened with the press was half the press would write, this is not supposed to be a dating site, but everybody's using that anyway. Everybody's using it for dating any, every way. And then the other half would say, it's supposed to be a dating site, but nobody's really using it that way. So the press, I think, struggled with with this idea I had, which was a very conscious part of it, was that it was not a dating site. It was more than that. But of course, people were going to use it for dating. And, you know, that's, I don't think that's that complicated concept, but the press just always seemed to, you know, to get stuck up on that. And they would be like, Jonathan doesn't want to use it for people to use it for dating, but they are. Or Jonathan thought it was a dating site, but nobody really, you know, agrees or something like that. And, the, and neither of those was, was, was true, but that's just what I'd see over and over again. Part of it was that I was also, you know, just like Netscape um, had the boogeyman being Bill Gates and Microsoft, for a teeny startup, it's often helpful, especially with the press, to anchor yourself against something that's already exists and is bigger that you can sort of contrast yourself at. David and, and I used, yeah, yeah. Well, and I used to also, I used to often say in those very early days, uh, and it's again hard for me, I, th I think, people to remember that when I was doing this, people had no idea what social networking meant. Um, this that was not a thing. That was not a common. A term. There were maybe academics who studying social network analysis in in academia, but um, this was not a thing. So I would I would basically say online dating is creepy. It's uh, it's it's anonymous and people lie. They don't really represent themselves accurately. It doesn't really reflect real life. And um, and this new thing that I've invented uh, is more like real life. It's less it's less creepy. Um, and I, you know, contrasted it with with online dating, just because that was the only the only kind of other thing that really, um, you know, regular people probably knew about that um, that was vaguely similar. But it was definitely not intended to be uh, just for dating. Now, you know, it wasn't a surprise either that some people did use it that way. Mm -hmm. So your Match. dot com was the Goliath that they framed you as the David going against, I guess. Um, a little, a little bit, but it was also, it you know, it was also just a matter of contrasting um, this new kind of service against against what it was deliberately trying to be different than. Mm -hmm, it, it was mm -hmm. trying, you know, it was this this kind of thing that's not anonymous, that's real, and saying that's uh, you know superior to you know the creepy kind of ways that people prior to this interacted with online, which were very uh, you know very cloaked with, uh, you know, with handles and, and people not really representing themselves authentically. 
So again, to to frame it, um, I believe you launched in February of 2003, and maybe within a year, you're you're definitely over a million, maybe two million, and that's with zero marketing, just literally the the textbook of viral mouth, you know, word of mouth uh, growth, right? The beta went up in 2002, some point, maybe in the, towards the middle. The we opened it up to anybody. You're right at the beginning of 2003. And then, yeah, by the end of 2003, it was probably at like 3 million. I mean, I mean it grew very fast. And um, there definitely was not any um, any paid marketing of any kind. There was a lot of press coverage. Right. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I did spend time letting these people, you know, interview me, which actually took a lot of time and, and you know, and sort of uh, not saying, you know, no to all those journalists emailing us. Um so yeah, there was a lot of magazine and newspaper and TV articles uh, about Friendster, um, and that probably uh, helped. Although it was an inherently viral service, um, but then again, if you got two friend requests from somebody from this thing, and you had no idea what the hell is Friendster? Is this a scam? Is this a virus? And then you open up your, you know, your newspaper, and there's an article about this sensation called Friendster. Then maybe you actually. Uh, responded to those friend requests. So it, it might have reinforced um, some people's, you know, skepticism and confusion about what this thing was. Were, were you uh, personally prepared for that, for, for both things, actually, for all of a sudden it to have <laughs> two million users and also for it to be this this media sensation? Of course not. Of course not. I mean, you know, and it's funny. I mean, this was, you know, as the press often forgot, this was my second company. So, you know, I had started this this company and, you know, it was... Uh, probably not quite the, the the right expression of the idea of how people should share links with each other. But you know, we still had high expectations for hot links. You know, and I was hoping this, you know, this would be a, a Yahoo or Netscape kind of you know kind of thing. Of course, you you hope that unrealistically, and especially during the dot com boom, it, there was this weird attitude that like every one of these things was going to turn into some huge thing. Even though, of course, that's ridiculous. So I'd already gone through the boom and crash. So when I started Friendster, at this point, I no longer probably had as many naive expectations. Uh, and I really had no idea. And in fact, in some ways, it seemed like a much goofier idea. I mean, the idea that people would, would you know, put their bookmarks on the web and be able to access them from anywhere and share good links with each other, that actually seemed like a pretty obviously smart idea. The idea that uh, regular people who weren't necessarily dating, who weren't necessarily entrepreneurs looking to meet investors, that just regular people en masse are going to go on the internet and use their real name with their real photo and then like say, oh, this person is my friend and send that person a request and you'd have to say, oh, yes or no. The, the, the idea that that was going to work and much less be big, there's no, no way. I mean, I had no idea if that was actually ever going to work. And when it grew as fast as it did, we absolutely weren't prepared for it, um, and and when we started getting all the all the attention, we absolutely weren't prepared for it. And many aspects of it were were really weird and overwhelming. Well, so obviously, with the uh, viral takeoff, um, then raising money uh, probably got a little easier. Uh, uh, were Reed Hoffman and and uh, Mark Pincus both uh, in your angel round? They were angel investors in the oh. company, yeah. Um, and there was also. Um, an approach by Google early on to to possibly uh, buy you guys out. 
That was later. Later, okay. Well, then, well, let's... it's not that much later, but later. Right, right, right. So um, you do eventually raise around in the fall of 2003 a $13 million round from, like, I mean, this is heavy hitters. This is everybody. Benchmark, Kleiner Perkins, and you get yep. tons of, you know, just a, a murderer's row of people on your board and, and executives and things like that. So was that also part of maybe you weren't prepared for that for all of a sudden – um, you're you're the you're the hottest company in, in in town. All of a sudden, we were, and that's why I raised the money from those folks. I thought that was the the correct and smart thing to do mm-hmm. to capitalize on that that situation and to take it to its potential. Um, that's what I thought. You know, if you you know if this thing is looking like it's the next big thing, these are the kind of folks who've who've helped with Yahoo and Google and Amazon and Netscape. And these are the folks who'd be uh, perfectly suited to advise us on how to uh, take this one to a big success. And it should be noted, I don't know that people remember this now, but there was, I mean, a million copycats of this idea. And some of them would try to do, you know, a different twist on it. uh, But some of them were just direct copycats uh, straight up. There were, and that was, you know, that was also kind of crazy because, you know, when you're when you're working at a company like Netscape, you know, and then you get cop- copied by, you know, you're competing with Microsoft. That, you know, that's one thing. But, you know, when you're working on a startup that is still extremely small and extremely young and new, and already, uh, you know, it's like you're Microsoft or or, or AT and T or something, and everybody's coming after you. That is just really weird. That's really, really weird because, you know, usually uh, a company becomes huge and successful and then people try to kill it and copy it. Um, This was a very strange experience to be still, um, you know, struggling to keep our site up, still be having no idea of how big it was going to go, being so busy working, you know, growing it, um, having a lot of skeptical press claiming we had no business model and is this just a fad because they were, you know, they all had a huge hangover from, from the dot-com crash. And yet at the same time, every day we're seeing another copycat saying they're going to kill us. It, it was weird. Well, let's let's talk about the, uh, the struggles of keeping the site up. Uh, you know, because again, this is in an era before the cloud and you you know everything's off the shelf and scalability is an issue that you didn't have to do by hand necessarily today but you definitely did um in 2002 2003 so um the 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 engineering issues of of just uh, dealing with uh, this insane growth and the insane amount of users it was difficult um i mean i think the root problem of technology problems is always people problems and we ended up not with you know not having probably the right people uh in charge later uh of uh, addressing our scalability problems but it was challenging as you pointed out there's no amazon web services available back then so we're you know rack mounting servers uh at a data center um in the early days i was doing that myself and i you know i have a deep background as a software engineer but i was not a um an expert in, uh, you know, configuring physical servers and putting them in data centers. I mean, that was not something that I had done at Nortel or Netscape. Um, and uh, today, there's all sorts of open source packages that people would use 
people are building uh, services like this. Many of those didn't exist back then, probably none of them. Uh, and also the whole nature of what we were doing was was kind of unique. So um, what, what Friendster did was it gave everybody a personalized experience. It was completely dynamic. Um, and that was that was pretty different. I mean, if you went to Yahoo and I went to Yahoo, you know, we both basically saw, you know, uh, we were both in sports and we both see the same stuff. Um, you know, Friendster was just so dynamic um, that there were a lot of real technical challenges in doing that. And, you know, now everybody knows how to do that stuff. Now, um, you know, it's it's something that people have been building for years, and there's all sorts of people who have experience from it, um, and there's all sorts of tools for that. But at the time, we were doing stuff that was very new and had very few tools that make it as easy as it is today. Well, and you mentioned how um, you know digital cameras becoming a thing was was a boon to to it actually taking off. But you're starting to deal with higher levels. You know, the, we're used to now with social media, the flood of all this content everywhere, but you're the first people that have to deal with that at scale, too. All sorts of issues. Yeah. And, you know, moderating the content, um, you know, at MySpace, they, I think, allowed eight photos. And that's why PhotoBucket and services like that ended up emerging, because um, uh, there were people who wanted more than eight. So just, you know, uh, sites like Friendster and MySpace and others, what we were doing was so new that all these edge cases emerged and entire companies, you know, got created around some of those edge cases. Um, so mentioning MySpace, um, another issue that I, I remember from the time is uh, sort of the the battle that, that Friendster had against these fakesters. These, um, you very much wanted this to be what we know of today, like this online identity, Right. Yeah, I definitely the vision of Friendster was that people would use their their real name and real identity, and I think that was completely right. And you look at Facebook today, and uh, it's real names and real identity. Um, and the you know the idea that um, people really wanted fake profiles was really silly, and obviously not true. Even on Twitter, where you can, uh, unlike Facebook, you can you can have fake names and fake profiles. Uh, the vast majority of Twitter is real people, whether mm -hmm. it's people you know or celebrities or journalists. Um, you know, I followed uh, Startup L. Jackson. I mean, right, you know, I, right. I follow, you know, I follow maybe two or three joke profiles, and then two thousand real people. Mm -hmm. So the idea that you know that people really wanted fake profiles was was not true. Um, but again, back to the press, uh, you know, there were just a lot of distortions. Friendster didn't have a business model or Friendster's just for dating or not for dating or whatever. And another one of them was about this 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 fakester war thing. So um, that was something that was just wildly exaggerated. There was there was this sort of meme that occurred that um, that we were mean jerks, especially me, who didn't like, you know, creative expression or whatever, which, you know, which is hilarious because somebody like that would have never created something like Friendster in the first place. Um, which was, you know, one of the sort of pioneers of, of user-generated content in, in some ways. Um, there, there was this idea that we were mean jerks and that everybody wanted fake profiles and we were like engaged in some war against that. And that was part or a big part of, of why Friendster did not succeed. And none of that is remotely true. Mm -hmm. So from your perspective, um, MySpace didn't gain prominence by pitting itself against you and embracing, oh, you can you can do whatever you want. You can have a fake account over here. Um, what? For, well, actually, let's back up. Um, why did MySpace rise above this crowd of the copycats, from your perspective? 
Well, there's a few reasons. So first of all, uh, you mentioned that some of the copycats tried to do things that were a little different. MySpace was one of the ones that was actually the closest. So uh, back in the day, Jason Calacanis, who you know, people uh, probably know of for a variety of things, right. he had a company that he later sold to AOL, a blo an early blog network that uh, was kind of maybe like the Gawker Media before Gawker Media. And um, on one of his early blogs, I think this is before TechCrunch even existed, but he had like a social social blog, whatever, talking about these new kind of sites like Friendster that emerged. And he called uh, MySpace a like a blatant photocopy of, of, of Friendster. It was very, very similar. And actually, in those early days, they also were hiding the identity of the company who owned it because the company that later be, became e Intermix mm -hmm, was mm -hmm. called E-Universe, and they had had a, a variety of scandals. But it was very, very similar. And I think the companies that tried to uh, diverge more uh, fared less well. But the other thing was, uh, Friendster, like you said, had scalability problems. Unfortunately, um, after we raised the, the venture capital money, I was quickly replaced as CEO, and the company, between the funding and, and later being sold six years later, went through six CEOs in six years. We brought in a VP engineering whose choice was to rewrite the parts of the stuff that actually were working fine instead of fixing the things that needed to be fixed. That was a horrendous mistake. And as a result, you know, throughout 2004, 2005, Friendster barely worked. I mean, the site was really slow. It was buggy. And that unsurprisingly caused an exodus of users to leave. And here was MySpace, which was very, very similar, blatant copycat. They were also aggressively marketing themselves to Friendster users. So they would go and they would spam you know, message boards on Friendster uh, more aggressively than probably any of the other copycats trying to recruit the people away. And that worked, especially since Friendster was, was having such technical problems and not working well. Um, they also added more stuff. So they had, um, you know, they just kept in add, adding new features and Friendster at the time was, was really not. Um, but the idea that it was about fake profiles. So on one hand, they did have a very laissez-faire attitude. There was more nudity on MySpace, and people had fake friends. So, like everybody would be friends with Tom, even though you're not really friends with real life. Mm -hmm. And and there were a lot of there were a lot of sort of like, um, what is the right way to express this? I mean, sort of you know people that they had recruited from the L.A. nightlife world, you know, sort the of beautiful uh, people. Well, not just beautiful, also not wearing a lot of clothes, you know, <laughs> stuff like that. I mean, that was a big, I mean, this may be, you know, hard to remember, but I mean, that was a big part of like the first six months, year uh, of MySpace. Right, tequila, um, tequila, and people like that. Yeah, people like that. So um, on one hand, those were not your real friends. And I definitely, you know, the idea, and I think this is the, you know, remains today, clearly Facebook proves that I was right, that, you know, my vision was for you to be interacting with the you know, with your, your real friends. Um, but even on MySpace, like, you know, even Tom and Tina Tequila, whatever, are sort of real people. They're not just sort of parody profiles. So even on MySpace, people were connecting with maybe uh, hot girls or bands, but it was still sort of real stuff. It, it, maybe not people you know, um, but you know, the, even on MySpace, the idea that all those like parody fixture profiles was what people were interested in, it just wasn't true. Um, but it was a powerful narrative that some people found appealing that we somehow, um, you know, 
created this thing and then ruined it because we were humorless jerks who, you know, who didn't want to give people what they want. And they really wanted stupid fake stuff. None of that was really true, but there were some, you know, some people who just thought that was a great story. But so the main reason that MySpace was able to rise to prominence was because their page is loaded and Friendster's not so much. Uh, it was the it was definitely the fact that our site was barely working. That I mean that was a huge problem, and this went on for a long time, and it was way more prevalent than the fail whale at Twitter. I mean this was, I mean this went on for like two years, and uh, MySpace didn't have that problem. They also weren't a startup. They were actually it was you know it was a Friendster copycat launched by a company that already had other websites, employees, servers, technology uh, that they were able to use. They also had um, you know existing users and marketing lists that they were able to cannibalize. I mean, this was a company that had been in trouble for spyware and adware with Elliot Spitzer, credit card fraud, things like that. I mean, they were, you know, they knew how to market things. Um, And then they also, to their credit, you know, while Friendster was just going through this period of just doing a lot of dumb stuff and having all these problems, they added new stuff. So um, they added, uh, you know, blogs they added um you know i don't even remember it all i think they had you know they certainly have they eventually at some point had events i can't remember how early they had events but they just you know they started adding more stuff uh which is another compelling reason to to use them yeah you if you mentioned that um early on um you're sort of pushed out of the uh, ceo suite do you feel like you didn't get the chance to realize your vision of what you thought uh the friendster idea could have been like you could have incorporated things like you know invitations to events and things like that were you not able through a combination of being pushed out and then also um the 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 struggles with the basic engineering were you not able to realize the vision that you had for for friendster oh yeah that's that's definitely true um you know, it's kind of sad or funny, depending on how you look at it, to look back at some of the the things that I wanted to do um, when I wasn't in charge anymore, but still there. Uh, and eventually I left. Um, we wanted to uh, use our social graph as a platform. And I actually had uh, a news company, a music company, and Yelp all very eager to basically, you know, have those things as applications on top of the social graph at Friendster. This is years and years and years before Facebook launched their platform. Uh, but I couldn't get those things done because the other CEOs were uh, pushing their own um, different uh, agendas. I mean, I wanted to do a music thing. I had a music startup in San Francisco that um, uh, one of the founders was a buddy of mine and I was an advisor and they were really eager to to do a bunch of music stuff on top of Friendster. But um, we had a CEO at the time, an ex-NBC uh, president, and he was working on an MTV deal. And the MTV deal never actually happened, but uh, because he was working on this MTV deal, this you know Hollywood-style deal, um, you know I wasn't able to to do this music thing with some little startup that that you know that was ready to go. Um, so uh, you know all these ideas I had for sort of making Friendster a platform and having cool things on top of it. I couldn't get those done. Um, I also, uh, there's, there's emails years and years before, uh, Facebook launched the newsfeed of me trying to do something like that at, at Friendster as well. Mm-hmm. So it's definitely, it's definitely true that I wasn't able to, 
you know, to execute on that vision. Uh, there was a lot more ideas I had, unfortunately, that we, 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 we weren't able to get done. And instead, Friendster did a whole bunch of other stuff we shouldn't have done. Um, surely Facebook had to seem like just another of the many hundreds of copycats. Do you remember ever having any sense of, oh, wait, maybe these guys are, are going to crack this? Well, we were definitely aware of Facebook, that's for sure. Like you said before, though, there were a lot of copycats that came before um, Facebook and MySpace. And the two I was probably the most scared and paranoid of were probably the ones from Google and Yahoo. <coughs> and in the end, Google and Yahoo each launched multiple social networking sites, mm -hmm. and they were all, you know, pretty unsuccessful. Um, but I, So I was completely wrong on that. But, I mean, I think... Um, that was not at all unusual for people, you know, just like Netscape was paranoid about Microsoft, which turned out to be <laughs> actually a big problem. You know, we, we were, we weren't scared of, you know, somebody we, you know, that was even smaller than us. We were more, more scared of, of Yahoo and Google copying us, which they did. Um, surprise, you know, and, and that, you know, but that, those social networks that they started were, were pretty unsuccessful. Uh, so Facebook of course was student only. So even though we were very aware of it, um, we didn't necessarily even know how it was going to go. And I mean, even in the early days of Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg himself wasn't sure that he was ever even going to go past students. So who could, who could have known in the early days when I was still at Friendster? Um, at one point, I think Scott Sass had tried to buy Facebook. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, Friendster at the time was, was not a huge company. We were, we were still small. We, you know, we were not worth billions of dollars. We, we did not have tons of money. We were not public. And, um, he was not really in a position to make an offer that was going to be at all, um, you know, interesting. But we were—they were still certainly on our radar. And several, um, several people who were involved in Friendster later were part of Facebook. Um, from your perspective, is what would be the thing that you would say was most responsible for Facebook ultimately um, rising to the top? Was it the? Was it the? the college thing was it the timing maybe it was just timing like what's if i had to if you had to give me one reason why facebook won what would what would it be i don't know if i could give you one reason i think it's a bunch of things i think there were um some friendster people uh who got involved in facebook and, and helped them and they were able to learn a lot from our mistakes and that gave them a sort of an unfair advantage i think that um even though this whole fake profile thing being what people wanted was really stupid and wrong um, I think some people, when when Friendster had all these problems and MySpace was doing well, thought, oh, people don't really care about their real friends. You know, the social graph doesn't really matter. Everybody just wants to be friends with Tom and Tina Tequila and whatever. And that, of course, was completely wrong. And some people then might have gone down that path. And then because of the focus on, on um, you know, college classmates, Facebook was more rooted in, in, in the real social graph. And as Facebook, I mean, a Friendster in MySpace, you know, maybe lost their way, uh, you know, Facebook was able to capitalize on uh, that original vision that turned out to be correct, that it really was about your real social graph. Um, and then uh, I think it was a huge part of it is that, is that Friendster and MySpace were mismanaged. If Friendster and MySpace had not been most, both mismanaged, who knows if, if Facebook would be what it is today. I mean, that was... Uh, a very huge advantage and opportunity for Facebook that those two companies, uh, you know, 
were mismanaged. So, I mean, that's a huge part of it. I also think that uh, Facebook had a much stronger engineering culture. Um, and uh, that was uh, that was important to not, you know, have all the same problems that, that Friendster had. And then, and then and I think a huge part of it was just that, that Mark Zuckerberg retained full control of the company. And that, I think, was also a direct re, uh, result of him being told not to repeat what had happened at Friendster. Hmm. Um, I saw a great quote uh, where you said, being a good idea isn't really the point. <laughs> um, and that sort of says to me that, like, you know, you, you know, the leaders sometimes get their heads chopped off for their efforts and... But also, like, you know, so basically Friendster is social networking as we know it, but just just having the good idea isn't – doesn't guarantee you success, right? No, of course not. I mean, uh, Google was not the first search engine, and um, that book we were talking about earlier, Jerry Kaplan's book, you know, he had an idea for um, – for something sort of like the iPad, it was too early. Um, he also worked on an auction site that was around the same time as eBay, mm -hmm. and eBay became a huge success. And his company, I don't think many people have heard of. So, um, you know, part of how Silicon Valley works is that there's all these people innovating. Most of these companies do not succeed, um, but the ones that do are often built, you know, on the on the backs of, of other things that have come before. That's just part of how Silicon Valley works, and um, you know, a lot of the, the best companies or a lot of the most successful companies are not really the innovative ones. They copy from other people uh, and then people forget. I mean, uh, Uber today, I use Uber all the time. I can't remember the last time I was in an Uber black car and the Uber X service, I think, really was copied from Lyft, mm -hmm. which was originally Zimride. So they benefited from that. That's just part of how it works. Um, uh, and that's normal. You know, I think there's there's tons of people who've invented important stuff and they're not necessarily a household name. I think that's, that's just, just very normal. You look at, you know, what happened with all the search engines. Um, um, so there's nothing really that actually surprising about this. Um, it's just part of how Silicon Valley works. And you, you personally have made your peace with that, that, you know, social networking has, it has taken over the world. It, not your social network though. You're, you understand that, and 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 you've made your peace with it. Um, well, I mean, it's it's on one hand, you know, I'm an engineer and I'm an entrepreneur. I don't sit around wallowing in the past. I just build stuff, and mm -hmm. you know, since then I've I've built new stuff. And today I'm working on Nuzzle, and people love Nuzzle, and it's cool. And you know, it's much more interesting for me to go into work and think, okay, what what new innovative things are we going to do at Nuzzle? Than sort of, you know worrying about what might have been in the past. On the other hand, um, you know, people do bring stuff like this up. I mean, I guess I'm here talking about it on your podcast today, but there, you know, there's sometimes that I get like weird stuff where somebody out of the blue brings up something from Friendster and it's, you know, sometimes it's, sometimes that's uh, fun and cool. And sometimes it's weird. It's, you know, it's, it's a mixed bag. Um, I, I mean, the reality for probably for, you know, every sort of annoying thing that I have to deal with probably from Friendster, there's probably two, you know, two cool opportunities or things that come from it. But, it, you know, there still are like weird, annoying reminders. I mean, uh, just like a year ago, um, the IRS came to my door about some supposed problem with Friendster's taxes. And the, this is crazy <laughs> because I haven't worked at Friendster for years. And in 2009, 
which is like six years ago, an Asian company bought Friendster. Uh, so I, you know, so the, I mean, that was crazy. And 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 uh, and then I started getting all these things in my mail about so you know helping me negotiate you know Friendster Inc's you know tax bill or something like that. I mean that you know and this is it's hilarious. And this is like ten years after I left, and I'm getting this stuff in the mail. So. Sometimes I get these weird things, and it's sort of surreal. Um, but you know, like I said, it's a mixed bag. You know, sometimes it's it's annoying, and sometimes it's funny. Um, I do want to. We'll we'll close. Uh, I, Nuzzle is absolutely. There's only. It's the only other app besides Messages that I allow to buzz my phone. So if you use uh, Twitter at all, Nuzzle is is just absolutely key but um you also did socializer so uh, my my final question to you is essentially your entire career has been about poking around this idea of social um do you feel like it's it is a solved thing now or, or are there still things that social media could evolve into uh that it hasn't done yet well it's absolutely not done not at all um you know, it's kind of funny. I mean, when we started, you know, this whole social networking boom, there were all these people who had such skepticism because of the dot-com crash. And they're like, this is a fad. This is never going to make money. And that was so wrong and so stupid. And today there's people who are like, oh, it's over. It's done. You know, it, it, there's, you know, it's Facebook, it's Snapchat, that's it. Um, and I think that's also ridiculous. Nothing's ever done. Um, you know, social is just... You know, you're just talking about the convergence of technology with people. I mean, this is the most, you know, the most, in some ways, the most obvious thing ever. I mean, the fact that I had to invent in 2002 the idea that you know that sort of <laughs> you should you should use the internet to connect with people in a way that's somewhat sort of like real life. I mean, that that was an innovation is is kind of funny if you think about it. You know, it's so obvious now. Um, so it's not, you know, we're not done. Um, you know, people are going to use technology to connect uh, forever. Um, and I, I don't think that, you know, that Facebook and LinkedIn and Twitter and Snapchat are going to be the only social platforms uh, forever. And I don't know if that's a five-year thing, a 10-year thing, a 50-year thing, because you know, I have no idea. But I don't think it's done. I also don't think that um, that it's necessarily, uh, you know, it's all about some new emerging platform like virtual reality or augmented reality. Um I don't think that's necessarily true, but who knows? I mean, I, I don't really see, um, you know, 80% of Americans putting on some sort of, you know, nausea-inducing huge headset over their eyes. Um, that doesn't seem very realistic to me. But I have, you know, I have no idea um, what's coming next. But I don't think, I don't think it's over. I think there will continue to be more innovation. Of course, that just seems obvious to me. But you know, I don't know what what that new thing is going to be because you know people like to th some imagine that entrepreneurs somehow predict the future, and it's not true at all. Um, nobody can predict the future. Um, you know, but you have a hundred entrepreneurs have some goofy idea, and they each build something, and then one of them ends up being, you know, you know, some big thing, and the other ninety nine are, you know aren't and then everybody gets excited but the reality is a lot of it is you know is just sort of um it, it, there's a little bit of randomness to it well i guess you heard it here first a, a social network in vr is not <laughs> in your opinion where where it's going to be at next but um 
Okay, Jonathan Abrams, thank you so much for your time, and thank you so much for uh, remembering all that for us. Um, literally the, the birth of social media as, as we know it today. My pleasure, my pleasure. If this is the first time you're listening to this podcast, please subscribe to us on your podcast app of choice. There's plenty more great internet history where that came from. And if you're a longtime listener, then you know what to do to help us out. Rate and review us on iTunes. Because iTunes gives credit to reviews and ratings, and the more great reviews we get, the more people will discover us. As always, there's more info on our website, www.internethistorypodcast.com. The show's Twitter handle is at nethistorypod, and my personal Twitter is at brianmcc. Thanks for listening.